Yeah. Thanks again for doing this. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. This is like one of my favorite poetry collections of all time. So I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. And like when I was thinking this, I was like, uh, man, because I had a co-host originally with this. And then it was like, you know, podcasting is like it's a labor of love, really. Like nobody's fucking getting... I mean, unless you're like the, some of the big podcasts, like nobody's making a living off this. And like, you know, it does get to be a lot if you're doing it every week and then like mm. every other week, even it gets to be like overwhelming. So I was like, all right, I can't do this solo. I can't do crush solo. So I was like, Cassandra <laughs> was the first one I noticed. I was like, you oh, have to well, do it. I'm yeah. honored. Yeah. I wasn't sure if you still had a co-host or not. And then I obviously like went back and looked at the pod <laughs> and stuff. But yeah, no, I'm so excited to be here. I've obviously like posted about this a lot so. <laughs> I was gonna say, it's all right you don't have to pretend that you've listened to like every episode or anything but <laughs> no i'm stoked this is my first podcast that i've done that's like less of a culture or politics pod and more of a literature one and this is obviously my actual background like i just found myself on that side of twitter with like politics and stuff but this is my area of you know more I don't want to say expertise because I wouldn't call myself an expert, but this is what I studied. So Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Like when we started that, I wanted to be like totally devoid of politics just because I was like sick of it. But like, I mean, in today's world, there's, there's no talking about art and culture without politics. Like it's just forced to be, it's forced yeah, into no, everything. Like, yeah. It's unavoidable. Like even thinking about this pod and knowing that we're going to talk about like workshop stories and stuff. I'm like, <laughs> I feel like it infiltrates everything. Yeah. Well, yeah, I do want to get to that. And then I want to go into your background, you know, don't dox yourself or anything like that, but like, you know, <laughs> as much detail as you want to give about, yeah, you know, your MFA background, why <laughs> you're fucking qualified to talk about this stuff and all that. Uh, and then yeah. I'm just going to go down. Yeah. Questions. And of course, anything's fair game. Whatever you want to talk about, whatever you notice, whatever you're fucking thinking of, you know. All right. You good? Yes. Yeah. Let's get into it. <laughs> heavy. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Bored. And today we have a very special guest with us. We have Cassandra at Truth Enjoyer joining us today. Everybody's favorite e-girl. <laughs> and today we're excited to be going over Richard Sykin's crush. One of, and the reason I invited Cassandra on here to talk about this, because she and I had kind of talked back and forth about like how much we love Sykin, particularly this book. Uh, and I just thought it was only fitting to invite Cassandra on here to go over it. Cassandra, welcome. Thank you. So excited to be here and to be talking about such a brilliant poetry collection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to get into Sykin too, like, because he's kind of a character. He's only put out two books, like. Yeah, and like each were like 10 years apart and his last one was almost 10 years ago. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to, we're, we're going to try and focus listeners just on Crush, but like, you know, we're going to, you know, no rules. We're going to go talking about it. But first, I want to just like 
ask you about your background, your poetry background, your MFA background. Uh, just tell listeners a little bit of how you got into poetry, what started you on poetry. What I mean, shit, what made you want to pursue like an MFA? Because that's like pro level. I mean, at least we, we call it that, right? We're like, oh, let's go to the pros. Like we'll go to the MFA or something. So what, what inspired you to do that? Was it college? Was it? Um, I always was into poetry, like ever since I was a kid. Um, I just was always kind of a writer. And so it was just like a hobby, really. And then uh, when I was in high school, I, you know, I, I took a creative writing class like in high school. And during that, I wrote a lot of poems and some short fiction and some personal essays and stuff and ended up kind of compiling a portfolio together and ended up winning an award in that what's it called like the scholastic art and writing awards like those awards for high schoolers or whatever so at the time i was like oh yeah like i'm a real poet like i got acknowledged by the establishment whatever and then i went to college and um this was like oh i don't know like 12 years ago and i was an english major so i did take a couple writing workshops in college just because that was like part of the major but I, I didn't study creative writing specifically it was kind of folded into the English major and um, I wrote some terrible terrible poetry during that time <laughs> but obviously at the time I thought was good and I look back on it now and just like painfully cringe but uh yeah but I didn't really think I was going to do anything with it I didn't submit it anywhere I, it was more just like for me and then graduated college in 2013 and after that i became a copywriter so i wasn't really writing poetry anymore and i kind of over the years of like writing copy and writing professionally for my job started to kind of think like oh i used to be a creative writer but that was just like a high school like fleeting fantasy that's not like i'm not good at it as an adult but i wasn't like trying like i, I didn't know if i was good at it. i just assumed that i wasn't and people would ask me like coworkers, like oh like do you do you write in your spare time? And I'd be like, no. And I didn't. I didn't write in my spare time from about 2012 until 2020. And then um, when COVID happened, I got laid off from my job. And that's when I started writing again. Like I just like had all this free time. And so I started writing again. And I was still into poetry, like in the interim, like I would read it and I was interested in it. I just wasn't writing it. So once I started writing again, I, and I didn't want to go back to copywriting and I was just like really burnt out by everything with COVID. So I ended up applying to do this MFA and got in and I don't know, it was awesome. I felt like I finally got back in touch with this part of myself that I had kind of left behind a while ago. And um, yeah, that it, I don't think I really learned a lot on the MFA and I, I feel like this is a lot of people's experience and I want to talk about yours, but a lot of people that I talk to, like, it's not that you learn how to become a better writer it's more just you have the time to write and that inherently makes you a better writer. So like even looking back on like what I submitted with my application versus like what I ended up with, like after the course was like night and day in terms of like the quality that I perceive in my work. Um, and I've published in like lit mags and stuff like that since, um, I do have a collection that's like basically done, but I haven't submitted it to any publishers. I need to. I've been kind of taking a hiatus from writing for the past year. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my background. I definitely was like a Tumblr girl back when I was like in college. And I think that's how I first came across 
psych in. Like, I think I came across litany in which certain things are crossed out, like on Tumblr. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to ask you that first experience of psych in. Yeah, it's interesting with the MFA. Like, there's a lot of, especially like in the circles that we hang out with online, there's like, there's a lot of shitting on MFAs. And it's like, uh, you know, it's it's kind of telling that the people that shit on them never went to one, you know, like they couldn't get into the MFA and they're like, oh, fuck that. It's like, yeah. And I understand where they're coming from because like there is like a snobbishness to it. There is like, I don't know, that kind of like academics, like like veneer to it that is kind of like stuffy and not cool. Uh, but like you said, I mean, you do learn skills, like not just because even if you have shitty teachers or whatever, or you go to like a pay to play MFA or whatever, you know, just the fact that you're forced to be like, I have to turn in something like every other week or every week, like it forces you to just do that work. And then like right. you have people like straight up criticizing it <laughs> in like no, it workshops. So like I, I think I'm the kind of person who needs that sort of deadline. And I think that's what I've struggled with post MFA. I don't know about you but I have barely written anything since my MFA. And I think it's because I don't have that structure anymore of like knowing that I have to bring something to workshop, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's a very common sentiment. Uh, my mentor at my MFA, she would always say after hers, she spent like a year and a half, just didn't write a word. And her MFA, ironically, she was a poetry teacher and a published poet. Um, shout out to my mentor, Amy Fleury. And she's like, but she got her MFA in fiction. So she even got her MFA in like a completely different topic, but like, it's still just like the writing, like they're not unrelated, you know? Oh, for sure. Mine had like some crossover. I'm sure yours did too. Like, you know, I took classes in all genres or whatever. And honestly, the thing that I enjoyed the most was actually like a nonfiction memoir class, more so than poetry, even though poetry was like what my major or whatever whatever you want to call it it was you know yeah for sure and it's actually interesting listeners like cassandra was mentioning her like manuscript and i think that's actually how we started chatting like as mutuals on twitter was like you were like posting about your manuscript and like being like despairing over it and i was like yo send me the manuscript like and i mean <laughs> listeners just... know yeah the world's so small like especially the poetry world and stuff like i mean you're desperate for like others that like share like the enthusiasm at the very least, if not like the skill set to be like, is this any good? Like, am I fucking up? Like, is this even worth to keep going on? Like I need. I know it's been crazy for me, like just the amount of poets that I have encountered on Twitter. Like I didn't get on Twitter for poetry. I got on Twitter just like to shit post. And then I've encountered so many artists and poets and stuff. So that's been fun. It is interesting that Twitter is like, I always try to explain people like when you try to explain Twitter to people that aren't on Twitter, you always sound insane and kind of like how it is this weird, like amalgamation of artists, for some reason, journalists, like, like, and then like, uh, uh, political pundits and like, I don't know, but it, Twitter is the place and everybody that's on it knows it is where all of your, everything gets made. Everything trickles down from Twitter. And so like people are like, oh, I use Instagram, I use Facebook, whatever it is. Like, it's like, okay, well, you're getting the leftovers from people like us that are like already talking about this, you know, sometimes years in advance and like. Oh yeah, Instagram for sure. Like I have Instagram, I don't use it that much, but like I will see memes on Instagram that I saw on Twitter like a year and a half before. And I'm like, oh, right. I made it to Instagram, that's cute. <laughs> yeah, and then people are like sharing it as it's like an edgy or whatever, like. <laughs> but yeah all right we will enough twitter talk i guess 
All right, you mentioned your first experience with Psyken. You said Tumblr, so maybe Twitter's relevant in this regard. Tumblr was your first introduction to Psyken? Yeah, this was probably in like, I, I don't know, like 2011, 2012 type thing. It was when I was in college, when I was still writing poetry, and I'm pretty sure I came across litany in which certain things are crossed out on Tumblr. And actually, it's really interesting because when I was rereading it for the pod, like just kind of reacclimating myself to the collection, um, there were so many little things that I was like, oh, this reminds me of this like shitty Tumblr poet. Obviously, that shitty Tumblr poet, like, you know, was inspired by Saiken, or even if they didn't know that they were, they were, uh -huh. you know, like, I feel like he was so influential during that time of kind of like the late 2000s, early 2010s, that even if you didn't know about him, and even if you hadn't read his work, you were being inspired by him. Oh, yeah. And I will, like, we talked about a little bit, we chatted about this a little bit, like, like back and forth preparing for this, where it was like, there's an energy and Glick even mentions in the interview, I mean, in the introduction, which we'll get to, but like, there is like this kind of unstoppable energy to the collection of poems. Even when you're reading a single poems, so if you were just given like, my personal favorite is Little Beasts, which we'll get to in this. But yeah, like Litany, which certain things crossed out was the like primer for, um, fuck, I wrote it down here. Of course, I'm blanking on it. Primer for uh, Lost, what you call it. A primer for the small weird loves. That's what <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's just like an yeah. energy to it, and you you find that like whenever like I don't know. I mean, it's hard to put into words why we're drawn to things like that. But like, I think the real craft of writing, particularly poetry, when you're doing condensed writing and you don't have this long form type of fiction, like the energy is everything. I mean, not everything, but it can carry you a long no. way. Yeah. I totally agree. Like reading this collection feels so different than reading most collections. Like I feel like when I read most collections, I can kind of like dip in and dip out, read a couple poems, then stop. Whereas like with this one, even though they are poems, like, yeah, you're absolutely right. It just has this energy that carries you through almost in a way that feels like a novel, even though it's not. And even though it doesn't have like a narrative arc as such, the pacing, like, I don't know, like I, like I finish it and I'm like, oh wow, I just read a whole poetry collection in like 30 minutes because it just had such good pacing. Yeah. Those are my favorite when you can just like sit down and poetry. I always wonder, I guess poetry is getting more popular on like, you know, social media and stuff and TikTok and all that. But like, you know, most of it's bad, but like there is like a reason that I find people are drawn to it. it's short you can get through a whole collection. Yeah, like you said, 30 minutes, an hour. Like if you were browsing a bookstore, you could pick up this book and within, yeah, 30 minutes to an hour have read the entire things cover to cover. And like, yeah, hey, listeners out there, you could literally do it for free. Go into a bookstore and just read it and put it back on the shelf. But yeah, my first experience with this book was I had a really good mentor in undergrad. And like you, it was kind of, you know, when you're an undergrad, you're just kind of putzing around and you're an English major and you kind of like books, uh, you know, you kind of, there's like performative interest in poetry too, like as I'm sure you've known, especially when you get to the MFA level and stuff. But uh, I don't know, I had a really great teacher and she introduced me to this book in a workshop I took with her. And I, the only way I can describe it, and this was this was probably around... 2013 2014 like around the same time and I, I can only describe it as like life-changing like absolutely i had never read anything like it before at least in this po poetry format like this 
Yeah, no, that's how I felt too. <laughs> and listeners, if you haven't read this, like go out and buy yourself a copy and oh, shit, we didn't even get into this. Uh, I skipped over it. But this is uh, Richard Sykin. This is his first book. And the uh, interesting thing about this first book is the fact that it won the Yale series of Younger Poets. If you don't know what that is, that is one of the most prestigious first book awards you can ever get, if not the most prestigious. And that's only available to writers that haven't published a full book yet and under the age of 40. And uh, <clears throat> this won that prize in 2004 and then was officially published by Yale University Press in 2005. And that date's going to be very important as Cassandra and I get into this here. Uh, so keep that in mind, listeners. But that's for the book nerds out there, Yale University Press. And you can find this on Amazon. It's a poetry book. It's not very expensive. So get yourself a copy. But yeah, so basically... We both disagree. This is <laughs> absolutely life-changing book. You should buy it. And what I was chatting with Cassandra about a little bit was that in 2005, this was published. And I started bringing up like how kind of the relation to emo culture and kind of the peak of emo at that time. And those millennials that know what we're talking about, probably only millennials know what we're talking about in terms of like, I guess there's some Zoomers that like, view it as like a novelty or like a nostalgia factor, but like we fucking lived it, right? Like this was everything. And it's fitting that I think Sykin had this book come out in 2005 and just how important that is to the emo culture aspect that it was like, this is peak time for emo. Yeah, no, he literally, I mean, like has that line in there in Wishbone, I'm bleeding, I'm not just making conversation. Like what could be more emo than that? Cut, cut my wrists <laughs> and black my eyes. <laughs> we should do that anytime there's a song mentioned we should uh add that to a list or something cassandra came up with the idea of putting out a, like a companion emo playlist to this oh yeah I, i've already written down multiple songs yeah. that like as i was reading the collection again i was like this song and this song and this song <laughs> so there will there will be emo talk about this listeners and it's not irrelevant and it's not us i don't think it's us forcing it into that framework either i think it's actually really important to this book and its impact not just on poetry but like on people like us that like pick it up and read it i think it's just you can't talk about this book without bringing up the fact that emo was the hottest shit in the world at that time like it was the fucking music it was the fashion it was even like like all the top 40 bands at that time all the top 40 artists they were fucking emo like, even Green Day put out their fucking emo album, like, 2004, right? Like, <laughs> And I also think that there's, like, a ton of artists downstream from this book, whether, again, like I said before, whether they read it or not. And I think a lot of them did read it, to be honest. Like, a lot of the artists that I'm thinking of, and we'll get to this later, are also writers. They're also poets. Like, they probably did read this book. And as I was rereading it, I was like, oh, wow, like, not only did like the emo, you know, moment or whatever predate or coexist with this book, but then I also think that there are lyrics that come later, like in the decade after this book that were inspired by it, in my opinion. Yeah, the lingering, the like the lingering effects of emo. And then you think, I think you're thinking of those like bands that came out in, like 2012-ish, right? Like when we were in college type yeah, I'm thinking of like, well, even some that were before that, but songs that came out later, but I'm thinking of like Mitski, I'm thinking of the Weaker Thans, I'm thinking of Girlpool, like just, I don't know, there were so many that were coming to me as I was reading it. And I was like, yo, these people were inspired by this book. Like, I'm dying on that hill. <laughs> For sure. And I was like, my thought was going to like modern baseball and shit like that with like, 
too. The, the kind of like late comers to it, like emo was not at the peak, like the pinnacle of culture at that point, but they were like kind of after it. But yeah, it's all intertwined with that. Like, and it's just like, it's no accident that this book got published by one of the most prestigious awards you can get for a first book in that time frame. It's just like, I mean, I, I don't, I try to avoid the, like being too nostalgic about something, but like, I feel like we're not saying crazy shit, right? Like this is. No. And I mean, yeah, it's interesting because like, yeah, neither of us encountered the book at that time. We encountered it years later. And then even then a decade on from first encountering it, we're still making these connections. So I think it's relevant. And the thing about it too, like this book, like, I think what people forget about the emo culture or what they like don't choose not to remember about it is that like, it's actually incredibly romantic, right? Like the culture itself and like the lyrics and even the poems in this, like, like, uh, one of my questions that I wanted to ask you, like, are these love poems? Like, and it's like specifically like an emo style of love poem, which I think people underestimate how like tender, some of that emo stuff was like, yeah, it was kind of like whiny, you know, cut my wrist, black my eyes type shit. But like, it was still like, there's like a tenderness or like a romantic kind of yearning underneath of it all. I yeah, no, I absolutely think that these are love poems, but they're like dark love poems, which is why, you know, that relates because it's like, they're riddled with like self-loathing, but also interspersed with romance. And there's like body horror like you've kind of got all of these elements coexisting together and you know there's like all these repeated themes repetition throughout the collection of like words and images and stuff like that that yeah no like i i can see why there's even something like musical about it but yeah no there's like a certain darkness to the to the yearning and to the romance like it's like you know that almost like this sensation that like you're never going to actually get what you want which i think is very archetypal in like that emo genre as well it's like it's a really romantic sense of it too like the kind of going for something you know you'll never get kind of and then constantly doing it well say it again sorry sorry no like or something that's gonna hurt you like you want it but you know it's bad for you like i think that that is very definitive of that genre yeah exactly exactly and I think it's also like this aspect of like, and I think emo is tied up in this too, that like, these are confessional, right? Like, these are like in the vein of the confessional greats from like the 60s. And we'll get into that a little bit because Glick brings it up and I'm going to ask Cassandra about it. But like, I was just like, there is something emo about the kind of confessional aspect. And Glick brings it up to like Plath and stuff like that in the, I have it marked here. I'll fucking find it. I know I've made so many notes, but they're all like in the book. So I'm just like flipping through the book. Like, ah, <laughs> this is on uh, page 10 of the intro, uh, a little bit of a paragraph. I'll read this and then we'll chat. It's uh, for a book like uh, this is Luis Glick. And I want to say Cassandra and I want to talk about Luis Glick too. It's not an accident that Luis Glick picked this book at this time in 2004. And like what she calls panic in this thing is kind of like in the emo ethos, the kind of anxiety as personality trend that kind of captured all this. But like that's part of confessional too. Like you're kind of oversharing to a certain extent. Like that was part of the culture, right? Especially about like love interests or whatever. So uh, 
For a book like this to work, it cannot deviate from obsession, lest its urgency in being occasional seem unconvincing. Books of this kind dream big. They trust not only what drives them, but the importance of what drives them. When they work, as Plath's Ariel works, they are unforgettable. They restore to poetry that sense of crucial moment and crucial utterance, which may indeed be the great genius of the form. But the problems of such undertakings are immense. Plath's thousand imitators cannot sustain her intensity or her, resource, or her resourcefulness. And I just want to say, like, I think it's fitting that Glick brings up Plath in this sense. But I want to know what you thought about in terms of, like, connecting this to the larger confessional movement. You know, Plath being, like, the most famous confessional poet probably that ever lived. Yeah, totally. I can see parallels with her. I can see parallels with, you know, Anne Sexton and kind of everyone in that movement. Oh, yeah. um, like, I don't know, when I got into Psychon for the first time, I was very much a confessional poet, if I can even call myself at the time a poet. I was like 19 years old or whatever, and I was just oversharing on the internet and writing my shitty little confessional poetry. But that's why this spoke to me so much, because there was like, he just had such a way of kind of conveying these like deep, dark, ugly feelings, but ma making them beautiful. And he's very aware of himself throughout the collection as him being the narrator, as him being the writer, as him being like both a reliable and an unreliable narrator, like on, not to like get ahead of myself, but on page nine in the book, The Torn Up Road, on the second part of that, he literally says, I want to tell you this story without having to confess anything, without having to say that I ran out into the street to prove something, that he didn't love me, that I wanted to be thrown over, possessed. I want to tell you this story without having to be in it. And I feel like that is like almost like a fucking like ethos or mission statement to the whole thing, you know? Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. I mean, and that's why, like, because even that, like, and I, I, I threw around this term when we were chatting before the episode, like kind of the emo sexual, like there's kind of, and even Plath had that. Like, if you look at those kind of the big confessional movement, like there was the Sexton, like there was that sex appeal that there was that kind of like emo, like kind of almost a sadness about it, a depression about like the, uh, I don't, the sexual, I don't know what to call energy or like, um, I, I want to say ethos, but I don't think that's capturing what i'm going for no absolutely i mean this book is very sexual but it's not it's not erotic i wouldn't call it erotic it's sexual but in this like dark way this way that's like very suffused with like shame and guilt and self-hatred and like all of these kind of dark emotions that coexist with sex so it, you you can't call it like sexual in that like it's not erotica it's not romance but one thing actually, like sort of side tab, I guess. But oh, yeah. when I, a couple months ago, I ordered this book for a friend. I had been like waxing poetic about it just to a friend, like randomly and was like, oh, I'll send it to you. And when I went to order it on Amazon, it literally said, when I pulled it up, it said number one in the erotica section. So apparently <laughs> this book was classified as erotica on Amazon, which I thought was absolutely hilarious and a hilarious misunderstanding like if someone who is not familiar with psych and is not familiar with poetry buys this book 
they have another thing coming because that's <laughs> that's this isn't what they're looking for i don't think but maybe it will open their eyes to to poetry and it's interesting because there is no like there's no like ginsburg style reference to like cock and balls or something there's no like even like it's about like like there is no like explicit mentions of like you said sex like it's it's kind of the more i kept seeing emo it's like the emo version of it where it's like this kind of um it's like this emo idea and glick calls it panic i think uh panic might be the wrong word but stuff but it's not necessarily like explicitly sexual it is sexual it's not explicit like on this is the last poem in the whole collection which i love snow and dirty rain but like he says in there the way you slam your body into mine reminds me i'm alive you know I feel like that's a very emo thing. It's also very sexual, but it's not explicit. Right. It's like talking, you know, in erotica terms about his dick or anything. You know? Or it's like, even like violence. Like, <clears throat> it, it's it's kind of, it is like an archetype, like you were saying, where it's like, if you equate, you know, sex and death, or like we go back to Shakespeare, we can see those like equated as the two, like, they're always equated because it's like, okay, life and then death. And he's doing the same thing where he's kind of equating like this kind of sex to violence uh or like death we could say if we want to go broader and like put it into that archetype and uh glick even goes the poem's power derives from obsession like the poem's powers derives from obsession she calls it obsession and i think that's like the emo side of it right like it isn't just like the sexual side it is the obsessive love side of it like the kind of tenderness almost even though it's dark as shit and like literally talking about like getting people to kill you or whatever like it's Yeah, I think it, it's, it is like a long archetype that it's actually per, like participating in in that regard. But yeah, and here, like, if you notice, listeners, we haven't even moved on yet. Like we're still talking about the intro and like we've talked to like mentioned like two poems so far. But it's because this book is full of it. Like it's hard to read this book and then come away with being like, oh, I just like this one poem or oh, like uh, it's it's OK. Like I, I don't know anybody that could read this book and say, oh, it's OK. Like even somebody like Luis Glick uh, had to like pick this out of, you know, I'm sure thousands of submissions. And said, oh, yeah, this is the best one. And it fucking That's crazy. Is. Like two things like one, like I'm pretty sure somewhere in the introduction, she said something like it's so hard to even find like quotes to put in the introduction because the whole book is just so good. She doesn't even know what pull quotes to pull. But then also just like sort of unrelated to that i've often just thought about this like you know when a really really good book does get selected like this one for a competition like this like you and i both know and i'm sure most listeners if they're listening to a poetry podcast know that like in order to even get to that stage like there's like the slush piles there's you know in order to get in front of her like however many that she saw let's call it 50 100 whatever that's still crazy to me that a book this good in this complete in this perfect was just like sitting there in a pile of submissions and obviously that's the case with like pretty much every like good first book but it is still just like oh my god imagine being her and imagine like sitting there and receiving all the submissions and then like picking this one up like there's no way that you don't pick this one like i'm sorry like it's just it's so perfect right (laughs) and i think people were it's it's weird because it's not the style that Glick would write. If people that read Glick, like, it's not necessarily her style, but you could see why she saw something in this because it, 
it's emo and we're, we were, I mean, you can almost joke about how emo it is, but it's also like, it still touches that place that we want great art to touch where I always, I mean, this whole podcast is about trying to describe what that is, but it's like that little, I call the best I can say is like that warm feeling that you almost get like that, like connection to it. Like you get that almost every page. Like I, my very first poem on page three, like I, I was just, my note is this poem is, it's like the very first poem is breathtaking. Like, and it's working on so many different levels and even like the lineation, like listeners, if you listen to this regularly, you'll hear me harp on line breaks and lineation and shit like that. There is no line break out of place in this entire book. And considering how it's like kind of using the white space and the lines are kind of jagged and spread all over the place. Like it is incredibly impressive on that technical level alone. And then you add in the kind of, uh, like Cassandra was saying, almost every line quotable here, like that's, it does it get any better than this. You know, it does it get any better than this type of poetry, this type of book. Yeah. Like in that first poem, I love the line, how it was late and no one could sleep the horses running until they forget they are horses. And even that line break between running and until just has so much laden in it. Yeah. And it's like that image of, yeah, like the horses running. That's like a kind of almost, you can throw back to all like the kind of classic images of horses running. And I guess I, I, I do you know this? Did he go to Arizona? I know that he lives in Arizona. Sorry. I'm grabbing my, computer charger because my laptop is shitty and it's about to die yeah, but was. no I, I i can't remember where he actually went to school i think he went to like asu or somewhere in arizona and then he ended up like staying in arizona for his like uh, did he teach there i don't know if he taught there but i know his like press and all that is is based there but i mean you know horses running very southwestern too i guess is what we long way of me saying that but yeah that first one just absolutely breathtaking the very first line tell me about the dream where we pull the bodies out of the lake i mean that, like a first line like that like i'm going to keep reading no matter what like and dress them in warm clothes again <laughs> yeah and the last line like tell me we'll never get used to it and it's true like you don't like throughout this entire collection you're not getting used to it every single poem you're getting punched in the gut <laughs> yeah Tell me how all this, and love too, will ruin us. These are bodies possessed by light. Tell me we'll never get used to it. And tell me that that isn't the fucking, like, emos. <laughs> like, tell me we'll this never get used to it. This artists, like, wished that they could say, but, like, <laughs> it as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you think of even, like, the great limo, like emo lyricists, because, like, there are some that are mediocre, and then there are some that are... Uh, bad and then there's some that are fucking great like brendan lukens uh but yeah i already asked this about love poems we agree they are these are basically love poems and they're kind of like emo love poems but i want to talk about little beast because i think not only does this like the best my favorite poem in the collection i think this might be the best poem if i had to like if somebody held a gun to my head it's like what's the best poem in this collection i would say little beast but what do you think it's difficult to say because I have such a long standing affinity for litany that like, I think that one's my favorite and it's so good, but like, there are so many in here that are so good. Little beast is so good. I also love the last one, snow and dirty rain. It's really hard to tell, but no, I love little beast. And I, in my notes on it, on the side, I have like exclamation marks next to stanzas. So yeah, let's uh, talk about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 
And it is a little bit long, so we don't have to read the whole thing. This listeners is like cut into uh, seven sections here. And he does this throughout the book with a couple of poems, cutting them into sections, but we'll just start like, I'll read the first section and then, you know, we'll go through and, and you know, feel free Cassandra to read whatever you want or uh, point out if I didn't mark a poem or something, you know, I said no fucking rules. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Little beast one an all night barbecue. A dance on the courthouse lawn. The radio aches a little tune that tells the story of what the night is thinking. It's thinking of love. It's thinking of stabbing us to death and leaving our bodies in a dumpster. That's a nice touch. Stains in the night. Whiskey and kisses for everyone. Tonight, by the freeway, a man eating fruit pie with a buck knife carves the likeness of his lover's face into the motel wall. I like him, and I want to be like him. My hand's no longer an afterthought. And that's just the first stanza, listeners. Like, it gets better and better with each stanza as it goes on. But just the images, like Cassandra was already saying, my favorite part of this, man eating fruit pie with a buck knife carves the likeness of his lover's face into the motel wall. It's almost horror movie, right? Like, it's almost horror movie emo, kind of like... Right, yeah, body horror, the specificity. And throughout the entire collection, you get all of this like very specific focus on body parts, especially hands. He talks about hands a lot. He talks about fruit a lot. He talks about like apples, like, I don't know. And like, you know, you can kind of think of like the goriness of like the fruit that's inside a pie. I feel like all of this is super relevant to that sort of undercurrent of horror that runs through the whole thing. And there's like a, I want to say crust punk, kind of like thing to this right where it's like uh uh living in motels fucking people in motels like kind of doing drugs and living on the street and uh not giving a fuck right like uh drinking yourself to sleep or whatever yeah this very self-destructive energy definitely courses yes. through all and I get, I guess that's like teenage, right? Like, like self-destruction. And it's like, I guess it's like a, it's like a young person's game. I mean, not always, right? <laughs> like, but sometimes self-destruction, if you're still doing that when you're older, like it usually leads to destruction, <laughs> like a final destruction. Whereas when you're young, yeah, you romanticize it. And I feel like, I don't know. I mean, even for me, like, you know, people like Sexton and Plath who, you know, romanticized death, write about death. And of course, both killed themselves. Like, those were the writers that I romanticized when I was a teenager. Like, as a teenager, you are so consumed by your own sadness and your histrionics. And, like, you're drawn to themes like this, you know? Absolutely. And that's why I couldn't These get the emo. transcend it because their writing is so good. Whereas, like, maybe, like, a shitty emo band doesn't transcend it. Right. But you're drawn to it for the same reasons. Yeah, and like we talked about in the beginning of this, like how we got into poetry. I mean, music was a huge part of it for me, like kind of especially the kind of even if they're shitty emo poems or emo lyrics, like it, it kind of whets your appetite for more. So like when people get into this through music or through fiction or through any other type of art form, like it does kind of whet your appetite, even if it's not what we consider, you know, the greatest ever or like high quality writing or something. I don't know. I mean, I, and you already said this, if your, your favorite is litany and like the way certain things are crossed litany, which certain things are crossed out. Like that's in the first section of this book. The first section is how many poems here? Fuck. 
Yeah, it's banger after banger. <laughs> yeah, it's only, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six poems in the first section. And I will just say this first section is absolutely breathtaking. Like it is a, not just, it's a powerhouse. It's a powerhouse of originality. And it's like this powerhouse of emotion, like Glick calls panic or obsession, but like, it's just, there's, I keep saying tender. I don't know. I can't think of a better word. There is a tenderness. Even when he's talking about carving your lover's face into the wall, like a motel wall, that's like, it's, it's like, like you said, body horror, but there's almost like a, this tenderness to it. Like this kind of like, desperate love to it or obsession I guess is what Glick says it's like the perfect word for it like it, there's this urgency to all of it that I feel like is like the urgency of desperation the urgency of desire and like unrequited desire as well yeah god yeah there's just some I remember when I was in undergrad and I took this poetry class with a different professor who was actually a great guy he's retired now but he uh I'm sure he doesn't listen to this shout out to David Bergman if you're out there uh but uh, <laughs> he definitely doesn't listen to podcasts. <laughs> but uh, I remember he like had us bring in a poem, and I had just discovered this book through another teacher, the one I mentioned. And uh, I brought in Little Beast and like read it. And like afterwards, I remember he like pulled me aside, and we just started talking about this like Richard Sykin and poetry. And he started like giving me books and shit. And I was it actually was like the start of like you know like kind of like mentor relationship everybody seeks from a teacher. It's always like. But I mean, okay, so just so many fucking lines of Little Beast. I want to get to Litany where certain things are crossed out. In this fourth section here, in terms of like, and, and Glick talks about this too, where he's like, he's talking about like, um, you know, gay sex or like, hom like homosexual, like gay men. But like, it, it, it does achieve the universal too. Like it goes beyond just that, where he just goes. And it is like, would you say this is masculine? Like this book? Yeah, I think so. Because, like, I, it does have a lot of, like, that kind of undercurrent of, like, violence. It doesn't feel like a, it doesn't feel particularly straight to me. Like, I think that you, like, you know, that homoerotic thing is, like, very prominent in the collection. But I completely agree with you that, like, I, as a heterosexual woman, still find a lot to relate to in these poems. Like, it doesn't feel like this is, like, oh, me just, like, you know, voyeuristically observing gay men, you know, right, right, it's, yeah. it's like, no, I relate to a lot of this. So I'm thinking of this now, now that you brought that up is emo masculine. Would it's we say it leans more because it's, it's also weird because it's like about wearing girl jeans and like makeup and like spending an hour on your hair and like, you know, but emo also has the undercurrent of violence. I feel like it also has this kind of undercurrent of like pent up masculinity, even if the performance of it isn't explicitly masculine, even if the performance of it might even come across as feminine, it still feels like there's this like masculine anger that comes through a lot in it. And maybe that comes through in here too. I haven't thought about that a lot. That's my off the cuff take. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I just literally, I just thought about this now with you mentioned it. Yeah. Like uh, it's, that's an interesting, yeah it is suppressed masculinity or like a, like a, Oh wow. That's emerged. Maybe that's it's, it's making me, I, I want to go off like a huge tangent. Now I'm trying not to, in terms of like, uh, <laughs> like the emo culture itself and the time period that it happened in, like it couldn't have happened in any other time than those first couple, you know, early two thousands coming out of kind of the punk scene, uh, and like the pop rock scene and indie rock all blurring together for this thing. It was, 
That's interesting. Listeners, write in about that if you're uh, if you have thoughts on well, that. It's like, it's like making masculinity more palatable in like the upfront way like on the surface but then under it there's still this kind of like pulsating like anger and resentment and violence and self-hatred you know like the violence turned inward on oneself I think all of this is like related I don't have like a thesis on it but I do I see it in this collection and I see it in in that music as well yeah it's interesting very interesting but before we got on that, I was thinking, yeah, that fourth section, the first line of the fourth section, he had green eyes, so I wanted to sleep with him. And, like, that's funny, right? Like, that's, like, a, like, there's, like, it's not devoid of humor either. It's not, like, super serious, but it also is, like, incredibly serious at the same time. Like, like I don't know. I mean... Maybe I'm just reading too much into it with like trying to theorize with like larger cultural. Oh, no, no, I think it's funny too. And I mean, Glick like talks about this in the intro. Like she talks about how he is funny and he has these little snarky asides or non sequiturs or they're not actually non sequiturs, but kind of feel that way. But like, yeah, like I, I think that that propels the whole thing forward. Like even the second section, someone once told me that explaining is an admission of failure. <laughs> I'm sure you remember. I was on the phone with you, sweetheart. Like he's like so snarky and he's funny. Like he really is. The sweetheart is fantastic. Like the little added there, the conversational, right. like <laughs> and he does that a few times, like where he's like it kind of makes it be on the phone. Like where I where he's like, Yeah, you remember, don't you, dear? kind of thing. Like he just adds that little like sweetheart or dear or baby or whatever. Oh, right. A little bit snarky and i like that i i personally am very into poems that have a little bit of that kind of simmering bitter sarcasm to it so like very much on board with that uh the last thing i wanted to hit just great lines in the sixth section i'll do it it's short listeners but i'll read it we uh just because i feel like the last line here is the best part of the section six but uh you have to read the whole thing to like get like the uh the uh the real impact of it. So we still grope for each other on the back stairs or in parked cars as the roads around us grew glossy with ice and our breath softened the view through a glass already laced with frost. But more frequently, I was finding myself sleepless and he was running out of lullabies. But damn if there isn't anything sexier than a slender boy with a handgun, a fast car, a bottle of pills. And that's like, that could be a lyric. Like that could be like a song lyric. Yeah, for sure. This is like very Tumblr core as well. <laughs> Give me that because I'm completely devoid of Tumblr. What is Tumblr core to listeners oh, and myself? Kind of like, you know, that kind of 2012 era that was like, you know, like Skins, that TV show where that was all very like self-destructive, anorexia, drugs, violence, sex, whatever. Gossip Girl, same thing. Lana Del Rey same thing you know all of that was kind of coming out at the same time and coalescing into this aesthetic that i feel was very definitive of the time and obviously this came out before that but i can see why this took off on tumblr because it has that exact aesthetic of like kind of glamorized self-destruction kind of romanticizing your own worst impulses i don't know it fits for me it makes sense yeah I was, we were chatting about this before we were recording listeners. And I was saying, I was like, I bet Syken had 
some of those early emo records and i bet he was spinning them when he was in college and grad school and shit like i bet he was listening to some of that brand new because brand new's most influential albums were already out while he was probably working on this like who are the other early bands that were just like pioneering it to be like a pop like top 40 band with it too like oh no i really think that like i i re-listened to deja and tendu like before this pod just because i was trying to get in the email mindset and like yeah even those first lines of the album like i'm sinking like a stone in the sea and burning like a bridge for your body and then you know then it launches into like sick transit gloria and you know that whole song is like it's the definition of in my opinion like sexual but not erotic and I think that that is very similar to a lot of the themes in this collection. Like in, in this collection, I think that Jesse Lacey, like the singer of Brand New, obviously the lyricist, like I think that he and Saiken have a lot of similar themes that like in some of the poems, Saiken is like sort of the victim or the one who's having something done to him. In other poems, he's the perpetrator and he's the one enacting violence on someone else. And I think that that is very similar in the way that Brand New kind of talks about sex and violence and like the intersections of the two. And it's interesting now, especially knowing that like, you know, Jesse Lacey got Me Too'd and, you know. He was like like, the first, right? He was like the first of the musicians to get like straight Me Too'd by like. Yeah, that was a big one. But like, it's interesting because I was always so surprised by people being surprised by it. Because if you actually listen to his lyrics, he's been very honest and forthcoming about, you know, his self-hate and resentment towards himself because of all of this like sex stuff. Like, I mean, me versus Maradona versus Elvis is literally about the narrator, which like could presumably be him like date raping a girl (sighs) when she's drunk. But then like, you know, then we've got ones like sick transit Gloria where he's kind of the one being date raped. And like, I don't know, he clearly has a very dark experience himself with sex. Saiken does too. I like, anyway, I'm rambling, but yeah, I absolutely sense the parallels. And that, that's why I kept saying masculine because I think you just put it on there where it's like, there's this like violence, it's repressed, but then it's like, it's, it's not erotic. It's like the more tender side of love, but then it's like very shoved through this kind of masculine, like violent, like meat grinder or whatever, like, like uh, not devoid of sex, but like you said, not it's not like one of like a dirty or erotica type poems or books or something like that. It's just very emo. <laughs> emo is the best descriptor of it. Yes. Fuck. All right. Yeah. <laughs> let's get to, uh, let's get to litany in which certain things are crossed out. Yeah. So this one's like my favorite. I recorded myself reading it on Twitter like months ago, but then I deleted it because it annoys me on Twitter. When you record a poem, or when you record anything, I think it only lets you record like a minute or something. And then it goes into like a new recording. And this poem is so long yeah. that like, six recordings. And I was like, this is too much. And then I deleted it. <sighs> I've been noticing, like I've been trying to put out like fucking clips from this podcast to like promo shit. And Twitter is the, the restrictions on video and like voice stuff. Like if you're trying to share actual clips of something, because I find at least to like trying to promo shit like this, like, people don't want to click links. They want to click play. Like they wanted to have it like right in front of them and click play. And they only let you do two minute videos. So if you have a clip that's like two minutes and 30 seconds, like it doesn't let you put it out there and it doesn't let you do like what Instagram and TikTok let you do, which is let you trim it down 
to like fit their like frame or whatever before you post. So like, yeah, Twitter is, it's weirdly primitive in that way with like trying to share media other than just text or, uh, Elon Elon Musk. Let us read poetry on Twitter.com. Yeah, yeah, fucking Elon Musk. He would like this book. He, he would get a Richard Sykin t-shirt and like wear it. But actually, yeah, even speaking of this poem, I know that like I'm just diving right in and we Go can like yeah. circle back. But like even on the first page of it, page 11, who am I? I'm just a writer. I write things down. I walk through your dreams and invent the future. Like just the reason I bring that up is because we were just talking about Jesse Lacey and brand new and on Deja and Tendu. Okay, I believe you, but my Tommy gun don't. He literally says like, these are the words you wish you wrote down. These are the, this is the way you wish your voice sounds, you know, like this kind of awareness of like, I am the narrator and you're going to listen to me. And like, even later in this poem, I'm pretty sure he says, oh yeah. So on page 14, okay, if you're so great, you do it. Here's the pencil, make it work. And that's also like a sarcastic taunt that it's kind of like, you can't do it, bitch. Like I'm the only one who can tell this story this way. And like, you're not going to be able to do it. So shut up basically. Yeah. Sure, I sink the boat of love, but that comes later. And yes, I swallow glass, but that comes later. Yeah, fucking so good. I'll, I'll read my favorite part of it. Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, there are so many parts of this that are amazing. And like, like I said, I tried to read the whole thing on Twitter because I couldn't like click. I could not find one part to just read. But this is my favorite part. Hello, darling. Sorry about that. Sorry about the bony elbows. Sorry we lived here. Sorry about the scene at the bottom of the stairwell and how I ruined everything by saying it out loud. Especially that, but I should have known. You see, I take the parts that I remember and stitch them back together to make a creature that will do what I say or love me back. I'm sorry, I just think that that is like, incredible like how i ruined everything by saying it out loud and then the kind of horrific body horror of like stitching the creature back together like like almost that like the love is dead and you're going to like dig it up out of the ground and like put like stuffing in it like i don't know i just think that that is amazing and like again like the phone like the hello darling like the kind of like you're leaving a voicemail like and it is hard to think back. I mean, like smartphones didn't exist when this book came out. Like we had cell phones, but, and like those were like the main form, but like, you know, nobody was on their phone like they are now type thing. So it was like, I don't know, like, and then you think, I think of almost emo lyrics too, where you're kind of like, maybe Frank O'Hare, if we want to go stick to poetry with like, like the kind of pers person, you know, what the fuck's his manifesto? uh personism or whatever um yeah where it's just like you could just talk to somebody on the telephone and there's a poem like kind of thing if you write it as that way oh, it's yeah. just it's so interesting that you bring that up in relation to emo because i wasn't thinking about this when i was making notes or anything but like so many emo bands like the front bottoms are a good example of like a sort of third wave emo band that does this but like you know it, it's almost like a trope now of third wave midwest emo that you're incorporating like voicemails, you know, like breakup voicemails. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like, yeah, it's really interesting that you say that, that like, yeah, it does feel like Sykin is leaving a voicemail here. <laughs> yeah. 
it's also funny on that same page i wrote this down in the margins but earlier uh like a couple lines before i was gonna say stanzas but this whole poem is one stanza this stream of consciousness but uh let me do it right for once for the record and even something as small as that made me think of like uh so there's the song by mitski i don't know if you're familiar with but it's pink in the night i think is what it's called and the lyric is like i know i kissed you before but i didn't do it right so can i try again try again try again and I don't know for sure that, you know, she was inspired by Saiken directly or indirectly. I do know that Mitski is very interested in poetry, has written about poetry, writes poetry herself, submits to Lit Mags herself on top of being a lyricist. And she kind of came of age in the same era as us. And so in my heart of hearts, I believe that whether she was making an allusion to this poem or not, it was influential to her. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, I, it's it has to be. And you can never tell, like... I actually want to do an episode on Bloom's anxiety of influence and like go into like how much we can even measure that kind of like influence from one artist to another. But I think all the, especially those early emo guys, I just, and I think like clap your hands, say yeah and shit like that. Although I guess that, that kind of branches into indie rock more than emo, but it's like, I know he was obsessed with John Berryman. He was obsessed with Plath, like the confessional poets and like, yeah, that fucking affected it. I'm sure. Like everybody was, and like you said, if it was on Tumblr, like if it got very popular on like the early internet kind of forums, right away. I mean, they saw. I, I there's no doubt in my mind that these these artists right. saw this and like were inspired by it, just like we are here, like gushing over it, kind of like. Right. Like the first section, just breathtaking, like absolutely breathtaking, like. It's so good. All right, fuck. Uh, the next one I want to hit is a primer for small weird loves. Did you have anything that we've skipped over? So I don't want to skip over shit that you want to. Um, I did quickly want to say something about boot theory, but yes. I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, so that's on page 20. If anyone is actually reading along. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, it's really not relevant, but I guess it's sort of relevant to what we were just talking about, which was me just making like specious emo connections to the poem um, at the end where he says, a man takes his sadness down to the river and throws it in the river, but then he's still left with the river. A man takes his sadness and throws it away, but then he's still left with his hands. And so one of the bands that I have always really loved and kind of, they were around right like at the same time, like I'm pretty sure their first album, this is the weaker thans. I'm pretty sure their first album left and leaving came out around the same time as this book was written, like early two thousands. And then later they came out with a few other albums. And one of their subsequent albums is called reconstruction site. And um, the lead singer of that, uh, band John K. Sampson is a poet himself. I'm pretty sure he either has an MFA or he's definitely at least taught at MFAs. He has a poetry collection. And um, there's this one song, Reconstruction Site, which is like the titular song of that album. And it goes, throw away my misery. It never meant that much to me. It never sent to get well card. And to me, I'm like, he definitely knows Psychin. He teaches at a fucking MFA. So to me, that illusion of a man taking his sadness and throwing it away, but still being left with his hands, like there is, you know, a, a red thread that kind of like runs through all of that. But 
that was my take on that poem. Nothing really major to say, just more emo connections. It is like, I talked about this, on, I've talked about it all the time, but like, when you're putting out a can like a, when you're doing a creative thing like it does like and you're obsessed with it like it does take something from you like it takes like you're not the same person at the end of it kind of thing almost uh and then when you're doing something like this which is you know we don't want to speculate too much about his personal life and stuff like that but like you know it's clearly confessional so when you're doing something confessional and you're trying to make like a great work of art with it. Like, I think it takes something like even more than like, cause not only are you being vulnerable with like the confessional aspect of it and everybody talks about Lowell and shit, but like, you know, what the fuck was Lowell confessing? You know, like, uh, uh, it, it, it's, yeah. Yeah. I feel like someone like Sexton did a better job of kind of putting it all out there on the line than Lowell and even Plath. Like I, I, I really like both of them, but like, you know, they get called confessional poets. I think that both of them are like relatively like cryptic and relatively poetic. So is Sexton, but I feel like Sexton did a better job of kind of just like, I don't know, vomiting it out there in a way and not hiding it behind poeticism and metaphor and Sykin. You know, Sykin like kind of says it how it is. It's still very poetic, but he's not hiding anything. It's not cryptic. It doesn't take, you know, a scholar of poetry to figure out what he's saying. And I like that about it. Like that it's like, it's, yeah. Like you can tell that he is like, almost like ripping his heart out and putting it on the page. And it's interesting because I do think like, and not to get too much into my poetry that no one has ever read <laughs> to this, but like, you know, like when I, when I write, poetry that's like confessional or whatever I can't write it until after the thing has passed so like I can write confessional poetry but I can't write it when I'm in it so when I read it when I'm in it it comes out like wrong it comes out probably too emo like emo in the bad way emo like an emo lyricist like cute is what we aim for right <laughs> like, yeah you know um but if I write about it like years later I can still remember the feeling but like I have enough poetic distance to make it sound good and I don't know when Sykin wrote this in relation to whatever was going on in his personal uh, life, if that, but that would be really interesting if he was able to write it during that moment. That's something that I envy because I definitely need the emotional distance to be able to write about something. Yeah. It's uh, that's, I mean, the reason I brought it up anyway is because it's like when you're doing that too, and you're confessing. So then like you're vulnerable anyway, when you're putting out something that you created, but then if it does have this kind of confessional aspect to it, and it's something that you're going through even, you have that added. I think that's why people take criticism on their art very personally too, because if it's a confessional piece and somebody's criticizing you, it's hard to not take that as like a personal criticism on your own like mental health and shit. Because you're like, right. "Fuck, I was writing this like whiny poem." But I think you're absolutely right. Like, there's like a distance that's required. But I mean, I say fuck it. Write the first drafts. Write the first drafts in the heat of the moment, like the passion of the moment, and then you can do the second draft. You know, you can clean it up later. Like, it's not. I mean, the novel that I'm working on is based on my journals from when I was in college. And like, looking back on them, they're horrific. Like they're <laughs> terrible, like zero self-awareness. I was like a mess or whatever, but it's like, you know, 10 years on, you can kind of look at it and like make it sound good. But I'm glad that I had written it down at the time, at least, because if I had tried to write about it 10 years later without any sort of reference point, that would have been difficult. So yeah, I agree. Write it down at the time, but it's not always going to be good when, you, <laughs> when you're in the of it. <laughs> uh, 
absolutely. Fuck. Uh, what was I going to say? Uh, okay. So we're in second section now. Uh, a primer for the small weird loves. We don't have to read all this because, again, it's another long poem. It's interesting that, like, you know, he's talking about, like, the plain language that he kind of uses. Um, even though, like, it's plain, but it's still, like, I was incredibly original. Like, this is a powerhouse of originality, even though he's using plain language. The images are incredibly original. He was very conscious of the cliche, no doubt, and things like that. But um, I just thought, like, this is... Well, here, I'll just read the first section. I mean, this long, but like the way he structures these long poems, and I want to ask you about this eventually, like the kind of, most of these poems are free verse or structured very loosely. And then he has these kind of almost prose poems or block poems that he does spurs throughout the book. And they kind of pop up here and there. The longest one being You Are Jeff, which is essentially like a straight prose poem almost. Uh but I just, the first couple lines of this, a primer for the small weird loves, page 22. Uh, the blonde boy in the red trunks is holding your head underwater because he is trying to kill you. And you deserve it. You do. And you know this. And you're ready to die in this swimming pool because you wanted to touch his hands and his lips. And this means your life is over anyway. You're in the eighth grade. You know these things. You know how to ride a dirt bike, and you know how to do long division. And you know that a boy who likes boys is a dead boy, unless he keeps his mouth shut, which is what you didn't do, because you are weak and hollow, and it doesn't matter anymore. And that's just like the first section like of it. That last line is just such a gut punch. Like, <laughs> the way that he just like eviscerates himself constantly throughout this collection. And it's like so relatable too, right? Like that's why most of us like it because we're like, this is our internal monologue and he's just like put this into words, you know? And you this deserve it. You do. Loathing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know this. Yeah. And uh, the you, the second person, and not every poem in this has second person, right? But like the you, and like Cassandra said, it's like it puts us in that position. Like as a reader, you're reading it and you're observing it. Like the you is obviously psych to some extent, or we speculate that it's psych if it's confessional like this, but it's also bringing you into the poem, like the reader into it, like. And I think that that's such a testament to his universality, like this kind of like the way that he combines specificity and universality with such dexterity, because, you know, I'm a girl, I'm not a boy who wanted to kiss boys. I'm a girl, you know, like, <laughs> Like, I, it's not like I, you know, if this was really just like some polemic, like, oh, I'm gay and this was my struggle, like, I probably wouldn't relate to it. But the way that he's able to bring this, like, specificity of universal emotion in there, I'm like, oh, yeah, I felt that self-loathing for, even if it wasn't for the same reason, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, obviously, he's talking about being a young gay boy and getting beat up and bullied for it and stuff. But, like the way he's just like, there is this thing. I mean, I don't know. We can get into this if you want. I don't know how in depth you want to get into it, but like there is this kind of the way men pursue things that they're interested in or pursue like a love interest. It's very much like the emo, like the emo stuff is ever present because like, I think that's how a lot of, uh, suburban young men that grew up in like this time, like that's how they pursue it. And this kind of like, self-pitying self-deprecating way uh and i mean i guess you could speak i mean it's probably more universal than that even because i'm sure women approach it the same way but like or at least similar way 
I don't know. I'm just well, thinking of it now. I didn't have any fucking notes. I was just like, oh, what oh, about I, this? I do yeah. have notes that are similar to that, actually. Like, this poem, I underlined a few things. One that was, like, random and just kind of an aside was, like, in section 5, page 24. He says, things happen all the time. Things happen every minute that have nothing to do with us. And that, I felt, was, like, one of these other bands that was kind of downstream from him. I don't know if you know the band Dawes, but Things Happen is, like, one of their biggest songs. And I was like, yo, like, that has to be downstream from this. But then also in section six, he goes, and no one can ever figure out what you want and you won't tell them. And then section seven he literally goes, so you kiss him and he doesn't move. He doesn't pull away and you keep on kissing him and he hasn't moved. He's frozen and you've kissed him and he'll never forgive you. And maybe now he'll leave you alone. <laughs> and like, so that is like, so he's like the victim, but he's also kind of a rapist or whatever you want to call it there. Like he's the perpetrator. He's also the victim. And it's like this very weird gray area that I feel is like very reminiscent of, again, not to keep harping on this but going back to sick transit gloria by brand new or me versus maradona versus elvis by brand new and kind of this self-loathing but like submerged desire repressed desire and i think that it's exactly like in line with what you were saying as well about like yeah submerged masculinity i don't know i, I don't have anything specific to say on that either i just literally underlined all those sections but <laughs> yeah and I think you, the email keeps coming back up, listeners, because I think, like I said in the beginning, it's, it's, you can't separate it. You can't separate it. Like you, the cultural milieu at the time was emo. The the biggest music in the country at the time, and you know this is America we're talking about. So really, we're talking about the biggest music in the world. Is like, it was emo. Uh, the fashion was emo. Like. Um, all the bands, even if they were doing like indie rock stuff, they were wearing eyeliner and like the emo stuff. I guess you could say that was hair metal and stuff, but like there's no way around it. Like you can't, I, I just, there is no way around it. Like they, they are synonymous. Uh, Probably also, you know, emo was born out of the cultural moment too. Like it's not even a chicken or the egg thing. Like it was the cultural moment that we were in that like facilitated all of the, these like kind of, I don't know, like submerged, feelings of masculinity that has now led to our current moment, which yeah. is like this avowal of masculinity. Right. So I don't know, like one thing I like about this book is that it doesn't disavow masculinity altogether, even if it is more submerged and even if it is kind of this like grayer area. And I like that about it. It feels way more honest than either like disavowing masculinity or being like hyper masculine. I prefer this gray area because that's where most people live in. But like, and I know we'll talk about workshop stuff stuff later, but uh, I don't know. Like one thing that I noticed on my MFA, especially doing it in our current day, you know, 2020, men are so afraid to express any masculinity, submerged or otherwise, like anything that might make them come across as being like violent or having like desires that are not socially acceptable. That's, they don't want to say that anymore, even in fiction. Like even if a fictional character has it, then that's going to, be an indictment on them. So anyway, all of that to say, I think that all of these kind of submerged masculinity feelings came from the same place, whether it was directly influenced by emo or not, they were all happening at the same time in the same cultural moment. And now we're analyzing it from a cultural moment that is downstream from that. So 
Oh yeah, absolutely. And I want to get to that too. It's like, that's, well, I'll get to this when we get to the workshop stories and things, but it is like, it's part of the new rules. So you, if you're a man, well, if you're a straight man, especially like you're not allowed to express that, it's particularly in a workshop I'm talking, you know, of course you can do it online. You could do it in your creative stuff. But like, if you take it to a, a serious graduate workshop, it will be, you get reamed for it. Like kind of, if it's just, and it's not even like your rape scene or something, it's just basic male sexuality. So if there's like, a uh, male character that's lusting after obsessing over a female character in the fictional book or something like that is considered like a red flag or harmful and it will be talked about that's all the workshop will be about is like oh and not know. only will it be talked about in the workshop you'll get talked about outside of the workshop yeah. and you will be pigeonholed as being like a creepy predator man <laughs> among like the women in your workshop which is insane but that's where we're at and it's like yeah, not to go down a rabbit hole, but it's so upsetting to me because this is exactly the type of stuff that I actually like to read, even though like I don't like it per se on like a, you know, just as a female reading something by a man, like, you know, I, I, I don't want to know all the ugly parts of masculinity, just the same way that men probably don't want to know on an intellect, intellectual level, all the ugly parts of femininity, but as a reader and as a writer, yes i want to know and like that's what makes the writing so raw that what's that's what makes the writing so good and in the absence of that like what do we have like this just very sanitized version of life that's not true i don't know i'm not into that so yeah <laughs> i mean and, and that's that's the thing yeah i mean it is partly to do with the kind of i think social media is not unrelated to that but it is it's it's almost a fear like a kind of maybe this is why psyching is still resonates and that cause it is kind of this emo, like almost fear of the self fear of one's sexual being or, you know, psyching calls it the bodies or the constant reference to bodies and stuff, people uncomfortable in their bodies or, you know, your body never works the way you want it to in the situation like that, et cetera. Like kind of, I don't know, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's fucking interesting. Shit. Uh, one of my questions, and this is where I get to a little bit of more critical thing. Um, shit. Uh, did this book, for me, this book, it does sort of feel like it may like sputter out a little bit towards the end. Whereas like maybe that's just because of the way you read it because it's so intense that like by the time you get to the end of it, it feels like you're slowing down a little bit. And he probably intended that. But there was like, I would say, if I was going to criticize it at all, there was like a little bit of what you could say repetitive and Glick hints at this in the, in the intro where she says it does come a little dangerously close to being repetitive. And, you know, you could, if he didn't do it the way he did, you would say it's almost boring because it's like kind of the same, uh, emo style love kind of tragedy poems over and over again. But I just want to know what you thought of that. Did you yeah, feel no, that at all? I agree. Or? I did notice that like when I was rereading it, both like the time that I reread it recently, like a couple months ago, as well as when I reread it for this, he definitely has a lot of repetition, a lot of repeated words and symbols and images and things. And, you know, I was thinking about it with my workshop goggles on as well. And like, you know, if you're in workshop and you're reading something like that, like, you know, I've been called out for that too in my collection. Like, oh, well, you said this in this poem, so you can't say it in this poem. Honestly, though, reading it in Sykin's collection, I was like, well, maybe I can because yeah. he did it, <laughs> you know, but uh, no, I agree. Like I made a note. Which poem was that? It was like, 
It was around the uh, UR Jeff for me, like the, the, the really long one, the UR Jeff. Yeah, that one, I don't know. Like I, he definitely repeats a lot of things. Like, like I said before, like he talks about stars a lot. He uses the word sweetheart a lot. He even uses the word litany a lot. He talks about dreams a lot, apples, fruit, like, you know, there's a lot of that. But all of that to say, like, this is me grasping at straws for something to critique him on. Because right. honestly, it worked. Part of me is like, it worked because honestly, like the way that this thing is like laid out, it almost feels like traumatic memory or internal monologue, where like, of course, you're going to circle back on the same things because that's what we do when we ruminate. And this book is so ruminative. So, like, I think a lesser poet, and probably this is what Fleck was saying as well, a lesser poet couldn't get away with it. I probably couldn't get away with it, but, like, he can. So, like, I have very little critique on it, but I do know what you're saying, and I, I picked up on the same. And I guess for me, it's like... I don't know, like... my in my MFA, um, my teacher at one point, she had said this to me, but she had said it in class as well, was that all of us as poets have like certain like isms like so like for me it would be like a cassandra ism or whatever you know and it's okay to have them and it's okay to have them kind of interspersed throughout your body of work because those are like your themes but just like be careful that you're not repeating them too much and it was interesting to me because i noticed many psychonisms but i don't i don't think that he did it too much yeah, I mean, and that's nor like, yeah, listener, we don't get the wrong idea, listeners, like it is normal to have callback to themes and even images, right, in an entire collection to have like kind of echoes or like, I guess that's the poetic way to say it, but like callbacks to a previous image. And I, like, especially in these kind of a book like this, where where the themes are so prevalent. But for me, it was like the Jeff, we, the UR Jeff, and the reason I said the UR Jeff poem, and I remember the first time reading this book in like undergrad, kind of feeling the same thing. And I felt it around the same time here. So I'm like, hopefully it's not just me, but it does seem like it's the most different of the poems. And I don't mean that in terms of like, obviously just structurally, it's different than the other ones with like, it's long as shit. It's like prose paragraphs almost basically of these different scenarios that kind of repeat each other. Uh, I don't know. It just felt to me like it was like the one that I could point to and say like this one doesn't quite feel as like the other ones. No, I, I do agree with you completely. When I was rereading this, I kind of skimmed over that one because I was like, I don't want to read this whole thing again. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. All the other ones I really did want to read again. And they had the pacing that I like needed to propel me forward. Whereas like I'm like, I've read you are Jeff before. Do I really have to read it again? And like, it's funny because the last uh, section of it, section 24 on page 58, the you were in a car with a beautiful boy and he won't tell you that he loves you part. That part was super famous on Tumblr. I remember that. That <laughs> like, that was like, that went along and along and along. And I don't even love that part, interestingly. Like, I feel like it's supposed to be poetic and it's supposed to be good. But to me, it feels too on the nose. It feels too Tumblr in a way, even though it predated Tumblr. <laughs> Even though he fucking invented Tumblr core by writing that, I'm still just like, all right, this is too on the nose. Can we go back to the other poems? <laughs> that is fucking good, though. And you feel like you've done something terrible, like robbed a liquor store, or swallowed pills, okay, or shoveled yourself. Yeah. It's great. But yeah, like, I don't know. There's just something about this poem where it's like, I guess it's all culminating to that. But for me, and again, this is me reading it in this day and age. It would be different probably if I read it in 2005. But I feel like it's like, okay, we're reading this for like five pages and then it finally builds up to this. And it's like, all right, you could have just said that. But 
that's me being like very hypercritical because obviously it's an extremely well-written poem and it does fit in the context of the book but i do agree with you if i had to cut a poem it might be that one but i know that a lot of people love that poem like i've heard of a lot of people saying that that's their favorite poem so yeah and i mean we're getting nitpicky like that's me being nitpicky as shit you know like it's you know but it's funny that both of us did kind of pick up on that as the one that was like all right this kind of because it's so long and because it's prosy i just feel like it kind of like halts the momentum a little bit and it is a little bit repetitive like we were saying where and that's part of the design of it like structurally it's supposed to be where he's giving you the scenarios over and over and over again you know and like different ways they play out etc so that's like all part of the design but uh yeah so I, I understand that. But yeah, listeners, write in and see what you think about that. <clears throat> uh, one thing I noticed here, Wishbone on page 40 and Driving Not Washing on page... Okay, I'm glad you said Wishbone because I wanted to say something about Wishbone. Nice. All right, go. Yeah, before I say. Oh, wait. Do you want me to say mine? Well, I was, the only thing I noticed about it was this is where I really picked up on the kind of emo, what I called emo sexual or emo sexuality where it's kind of like a poor me lens on this kind of sex, very emo and like kind of very wrist cutters, very garden state, very, uh, you know, like those kind of emo movies that came out around that time that were all part of the cultural milieu that made up emo. But the real thing I noticed was his reference to Henry. We start getting names and the specifically male names. And my brain went immediately to Berryman just because I'm fucking obsessed with Berryman. I mean, the podcast called heavy board, but it's like, I don't know what did, did you notice that or is I just reading too much into it because Henry oh, doesn't no. necessarily mean Berryman reference because it could just be like a dude's name because there's like Jeff and like Henry and like other dudes names of this like dudes he fucked or whatever was in love with and no I, I picked up on that too to be honest yeah and he mentions it a lot Henry's not in just that poem is he like I'm pretty sure he's in a couple others yeah and it starts in this section three here where we start getting Henry keeps popping back up and like I said, I couldn't help, given how confessional this is and how fucking original it is, uh, that I bet... I mean, of course he was reading Barry, I mean, if this guy, you know, he was getting MFA in poetry and stuff while he was composing a lot of these, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, I don't know that. But yeah, what did you want to say about Wishbone? Uh, well, I just had two things. One, I already mentioned, like, at the beginning of the pod, which was that Wishbone is the one that literally says, I'm bleeding, I'm not just making conversation, which to me is, like, the most fucking emo mission statement of this entire <laughs> book. I feel like that's the mission statement of the book. You know, he is bleeding on the page. He's not just making conversation, even if this feels colloquial and fast-paced and stream of conscious, you know? Um, but the other one was the end of the poem, Um really felt like an allusion to Bernadette Meyer. Um, so where he goes, this is where the evening splits in half, Henry. Love or death. Grab an end, pull hard, and make a wish. Well, you know, Bernadette Meyer's poem, which was like from the 60s or whatever, which is a sonnet, you jerk, you didn't call me up, ends with the lines, wake up, it's the middle of the night. You can either make love or die at the hands of the Cobra commander. And then it goes, to make love, turn to page 121. To die, turn to page 172. Uh-huh. And I felt like this was explicitly an allusion to that. Like, I don't think that was a coincidence. Uh-huh. Like, to make love or to die, love or death, Henry, grab an end, pull hard, and make a wish. This is your own choose your own ending, you know? Absolutely. 
especially like so the image. I love, I love that poem. So absolutely, especially the image of like the wishbone, the snapping of a literal bone, right from force, right after we Lovely get the guy. yeah, right after we get the image of there's a bottle of whiskey in the trunk of the Chevy and a dead man at our feet staring up at us like we're something interesting, <laughs> and then we get. Right. The, it's so funny because obviously the Bernadette Meyer one is a bit more humorous. It's not as dark, but it's still love or death and kind of conflating these two things, love or death. And sex is in the middle of that too. You know, it's the middle of the night. And I feel like Saiken just takes it one step further and makes it that much more kind of like violent. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, absolutely incredible. <laughs> And there is like, there's like this kind of escape and I'm thinking going into like driving, not washing on the next page where he's like these constant images. And it's not just this poem, but I'm just thinking of it now where like, there's these constant images of running away, escaping from something. And we could read into that. We could say, oh, you know, uh, coming of age in terms of your sexuality or something, or we could say, you know, something more. I think it is a little deeper than just that. Where like the kind of, you know, shoving money into the jaws of a suitcase, cutting your hair with a steak knife at a rest stop and you're off, you're on the run, a fugitive driving away from something shameful and half remembered, like. Something shameful and half remembered is a great line. Yeah. And it's yeah. great because it captures that kind of, I guess the, the thing that's always like the in-betweens. Like the kind of like, again, even like the sex and death thing will like most of life occurs in between those moments, kind of like. Right. right. Uh, and it's like you remember these like specific moments, then it's like, what was this gray area that led up to it? I think that he does a great job at kind of like embodying that sort of dissociation or dislocation or whatever. One thing that's really funny, and this is a complete tangent and a complete side tab was so I had like read uh, a couple of the poems, but not the full collection, like at the beginning of my MFA. And I read the full collection while I was on my MFA. And I literally wrote a poem that it's like a shitty one that I never published and never even finished. It was like a notes app thing, but it was like based on a dream, which I found really interesting because a lot of psych and stuff also references dreams and all of that. And anyway, on page 31, straw house, straw dog, but I'm talking about section five, which is on page 32. He says, here we are in the wrong tunnel. Burn, oh burn, but it's cold. Anyway, he goes on. But the whole point is I woke up one morning and I was trying to do this thing. This was at the beginning of my MFA, where if I had a dream, I would try to write it down and turn it into a poem. And I literally wrote down, I forget exactly what it was. I don't have it in front of me, but it was something like, you know, we're at the end of the tunnel and it's always the wrong one. And I'm pretty sure I had not read this poem yet. And then when I read it and it was like, here we are in the wrong tunnel and all of his stuff is about dreaming too. I was like, are we all just having the same dreams? Like, is he just like tapping into the universal poetic like dreamscape? This is wild. <laughs> that I mean, it, it. I'm fascinated by that concept too, where it's like, I, I'm a kind of a believer of when you're doing something creative, you know, you're not necessarily aware of it, but like everything you're tapped into. So if you're tapped into some type of cultural moment or, you know, we spend a lot of our time talking about the state of the culture and shit like that when we're wasting time on Twitter. But like, it's like when you're tapped into that, like, like when you're in the process of creating, like you can do what people say predict, right? Where like, they're like, oh, this book predicted this 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 internet trend or whatever it is but it's like 
didn't so much predict it as it like this person was tuned in to the culture and like it just hit something that we you could see if you were tuned into it but you know you couldn't see it consciously kind of thing uh right like i don't know if this has happened to you but it's definitely happened to me a ton of times and i've talked about it with other poet friends that i've had where like i will write a poem and then i will read something similar to this but like even a poem that's actually finished not just the random notes app one like that but like a poem that i've written and i'm like proud of and then later i'll read a poem by someone else who's like more well known and be like, oh my God, they already did it. They already did this. Why am I doing this? And it's like, oh, now everyone's going to read my poem and think that I was influenced by them. But actually I wasn't. We were all just tapping into the same thing. But actually I was influenced by them, even if I didn't know it. You know what right, I mean? And yeah. like, I think this is what I meant earlier when I was saying like, you know, these later artists who I think were influenced by Psyche, they might not have read this book. They might not have sat down and wrote those lyrics and thought, I'm writing this because Richard Sykin said this on page 32 of Crush, you know, but at the end of the day, it all just kind of like goes into the same cultural, like, I don't know, landscape. And we're all affected by it, whether we read it, whether we listen to it or not. So even like a rhythm, but yeah. yeah, even like a rhythm, like if you're listening to a song and then you're writing something and like the rhythm of it will influence what you're doing. Like, even if you don't realize it's happening and, one of them, I mean, that's part of what makes it fun to talk about and like read and participate in art and then create your own art too. But like, it is kind of, you know, the mystery that everybody's always trying to talk about. Where does it come from? Blah, blah, blah. I don't know. But Psychin manages to capture it here. That's for fucking sure. Right. <laughs> uh, last thing for me, the meanwhile on page 59 right after the you are jeff and this is the second to last yeah second to last poem in the collection here there's an important line i think this gets to what you were talking about about dreams and not just that but creativity right like i sleep i dream i make up things that i would never say i say them very quietly like this kind of yeah this idea of sleep dreaming make up things that i would never say and i think that's part of the confessional thing too right like the part that we like about confessional stuff is the kind of raw things that you wouldn't normally say in like a conversation or polite company or, or anything like that. Right. But you can say it in a poem. <laughs> you can say it in a poem or an emo song or like, you know, any type of work of art. And it, it, it does, maybe it's that little separation like you were talking about with your own writing. Like it creates like some type of, barrier the fact that it's through an art piece allows you to be a little bit more honest or something and that's why people are drawn to the confessional i mean i'm just yeah. spitball i don't know you know no i don't think we're gonna call it with a fucking answer you know on the podcast but just thinking i know i'm like looking back because i feel like there was something that i underlined about this like earlier in the collection and now i'm trying to find it I mean, there was definitely the one that I said earlier about like wanting to tell you the story without confessing anything. I don't know. He just kind of says it throughout. Like even in Litany, he says, you want a better story. Who wouldn't? Like, I think that he's just very hyper aware of the fact that like this is read as a narrative and he's he knows that it's going to be perceived as confessional. And he's kind of going back and forth being like, oh, this did happen. But actually, oh. Like there was a, there was another one where he was like romanticizing it actually let me see if I can find that um, uh, like I don't know like he has some where he's like oh 
I wish it was better than this. Then he has somewhere he was like, oh, I, oh yeah, here we go. I had a dream about you on page 28. He goes, these are the dreams we should be having. I shouldn't have to clean them up like this. <laughs> so then that's really interesting. Cause it's like, oh, so you romanticized it and you got rid of the bad parts. But then on some of them, you're like putting out the bad, like it's, I don't know. To me, it's just very interesting the way that he is like very hyper aware of the confessionalism in his poetry. I have a theory about it too with like, I think this is the reason that autofiction is so popular now is I think in the 60s when Lowell put out Life Study, it really was Snodgrass, right? Arts Needle. And then we had this kind of confessional craze and Plath is the one that everybody remembers because you know Plath, even if you don't know anything about poetry, people know who she is and why she's famous and what she did in her most famous works and stuff like that. But there's a there's a really kind of irresistible appeal to the confessional aspect. And I think it's kind of taken over. So like, you know, talk about down downstream from trends. So in the 60s, this movement had to happen in poetry. And then it started expanding out to fiction and like all these other different art forms and like painting and you could do like confessional shit. And it really resonates with people. Uh, and I think that's led even to like the auto fiction kind of current trend that we're living through where everybody's only writing about themselves, like in all these fucking different ways. But uh, yeah, I mean, we love ourselves, right? Like we're obsessed with like ourselves in some regard and confessional lets part of us. Is also just because like even people who would be drawn to write about other things are conditioned not to now because it's like you're only supposed to write about what you know. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's part of it. Like that's never been me because I've always been kind of an autofiction bitch. Like I am a confessional poet. So like, that's not a problem for me. But I do think that a lot of people out there who would be more just like straight up fiction have been pushed into autofiction a little bit. Uh, yeah, and that's actually a good thing to uh, transition here. Anything, any final thoughts on Richard Seiken or Crush? No final thoughts, really. I just love this book and everyone should read it. Awesome. Yeah, listeners, go out and buy it right now. Of course, we're always going to link it in the description. Uh, Cassandra, where can people find your stuff? Um, so I can be found on Twitter uh, at truth underscore enjoyer. So follow me there. Follow Cassandra. Follow Heavy Board at Heavy Board. All that good stuff. Cassandra, thank you so much for doing this. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. It's been super fun. Hell yeah. This has been Heavy Board. Heavy. Board. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Board.
you the night sweats and the day sweats, pal? Pal, I do.